morning, everybody. Our last morning. Before we do anything else, I'm going to a very heartfelt thank you to Sheila, who's played most magnificently both for our theme talks and in the epilogues, and has put up with last-minute changes, <laughs> the vagaries of the chapel key, with, with good humour, and she's been a rock, so thank you very much, Sheila. The young people. We light our chalice today in thanks in thanks for nature. Let us be thankful for the beautiful greenery that surrounds us here at Hunkerloe. Even though nature surrounds us, let us remember the, the pollution that ruins our world. Let the energy from our chalice warm our hearts. We give thanks for nature's beauty. And we give thanks for the light that guides our souls. share with you a story which is from a book called The Iron Wolf by Richard Adams and it's a traditional Italian folk tale. So um, I need um, God. God would like to come up please. This is God. Okay um, and I'd like to also introduce the uh, Archangel Gabriel. <laughs> time after the creation and uh, God, you know, they had a bit of a rest you know, a bit bored now um, and uh, well, she was thinking, actually the birds, the birds are a bit dull they're a bit brown, they're all brown, they're all sort of this rather pale brown colour with no markings, no, no colouring a bit boring um, I think what I'll do is I'll make some special paints could you show them your special paints which are just over there <laughs> made some special paints which are really so special that they are, you can, um, <clears throat> they're so special that God couldn't make any more. And these colours are everlasting, you see. Um, so once they're painted on, they stay on forever and they're self-perpetuating. Okay. Now, God also had a box of beaks. Um, but they're not there. You have to imagine a box of beaks. <laughs> and, um, and they were all different shapes and sizes. And so um, God sent Gabriel out to tell all the birds that today was going to be the painting of the birds. And um, the word went out amongst all the birds, whisper, 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 passing around. And the birds came up to the, the hill on which God and Gabriel were standing. Well, the first bird that came was the macaw. And the macaw went a bit mad because there was lots of paint in the box. And God and Gabriel painted her <laughs> really brightly. Well, and she was going, oh, no, a bit of green there, please. Oh, no, no, I'd like a bit of red here. And, oh, and can you do a bit of purple just there? And once they finished, God and Gabriel, God and Gabriel were a bit sort of smirking behind their hands. Because a bit, she looks a bit silly now. Oh, dear. Oops. <laughs> So the macaw flew off back to her nest, very happy. Thank you, macaw. Uh, well, the next bird that came was the blackbird. And the blackbird saw... <laughs> the blackbird saw what had happened with the macaw and said, I just like nice, sober black coat. Nice and shiny, but just quite sober, thank you. And a little yellow beak. <laughs> and the blackbird was very pleased. And gave out a little bit of song to say thank you. 
there was the peacock. Well, the peacock missed what had happened with the macaw and, and thought she'd have something really exciting. So she said, can I have a big blue tail with green bits and, uh, and a little crest, please? Well, the peacock was very happy, sort of strutted up and down. <laughs> Now, some of you might not know what the loom looks like, because in Britain we call the loom. In Britain we call the loom the Great Northern Diver, and it's um, it's green. It's got a green back and white and black bars on her wings, and a black head and quite a pointy beak. <laughs> Well then, God was looking in the box of beaks and thinking, there's this really strange shaped beak here. I, I think I'll probably have to throw it away because no, surely no bird's going to want this beak. It's really weird. Uh, it's like a bag. And I really don't know what use this is going to be. So um, the pelican came up <laughs> and said, actually, that beak would be fantastic for me because I like fishing and I like to store the fish in it. <laughs> so they painted the pelican quite subtle colours so that he'd be able to hide in the marshes and gave him the big beak. <laughs> Thank you, Philip. Well, they were getting down to the last few bits of paint now and um, the box was getting quite empty. So, and obviously this was everlasting paint but it was only going to last the fresh, it was only going to be fresh for today. So God and Gabriel told the last few birds to use up the paint. So the kingfisher came up and said, paint me blue and green and russet. <laughs> so they painted the kingfisher and the kingfisher was really happy. <laughs> Well, the bee eater thought that looked really nice, but he preferred. <laughs> he preferred sort of more of a green look. <laughs> there was a hint of russet, but, but mostly green, and uh, there was a bit of yellow and a tiny bit of blue. <laughs> oh. <laughs> was a beautiful bird from Africa with a crest <laughs> and russet feathers and also black and white bars on the side. <laughs> and the hoopoe is very wise because it brought the wisdom to King Solomon. But that was obviously after this. <laughs> well, then there was a puffing and a panting because there was one little bird that hadn't heard that the birds were being painted today. And all the paint had gone from the, from the paint box. All gone. Aww. And the little bird came up, came puffing up, because she'd been down in the bushes by the river. And she'd only just heard, because the blackbird had gone down to the river and, for a drink and told her that the, bird, the birds were being painted. And so the nightingale came puffing up. Please, please, can I be painted? Please, please, can I be painted? And God and Gabriel said, well, we're awfully sorry, but there's no paint left in the box. <laughs> All gone. And the nightingale was really sad. But then, God found a paintbrush with a tiny speck of gold on the end. Ooh. And God asked the nightingale to open her mouth and placed the spot of gold on her tongue. And that is why the nightingale sings so beautifully.
let's join in singing this morning. And it's number three if you have a book. And if you don't have a book, it's on the piece of paper. It's number three in the green book. No, it's 133. I just missed out two numbers. It's not that far. Give a girl a break here. 133. That's nearly right. has no easy task. <laughs> no pressure there, Maud. <laughs> to bring to a conclusion such rich and fertile discussions. Maud Robinson, I'm sure many of you have met this week, Ministers with Unitarians in Edinburgh, in sharing her experiences and reflections through her time as a minister, she provides some suggestions for what it might mean to speak of God more effectively in our Unitarian communities. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Mel. Following yesterday's wonderful presentation by Nancy, somebody mentioned to me that although they found a lot of richness and so many wonderful things to take from that talk, that all that very biblical language and harking back to a very, very Christian way of of 
of looking at God was hard for her. She found it very difficult to kind of get through that language because of experiences earlier in life that had maybe given a, a negative uh, slant on some of this language. And that's exactly what I want to talk about today, how we actually use the word God and how it is perceived by the people who hear it. We have to be very mindful that we come from very, very diverse congregations and because something is meaningful and full of, of, of goodness and wisdom for us doesn't necessarily mean that it's heard in the same way by other people. So speaking of God, I subtitled my presentation Some Views from Punters in the Pews. <laughs> and later I'll be sharing with you some images of and ideas about God from Edinburgh Unitarians. And I think that they will resonate with Unitarians far and wide. I've been very aware for some time how mindful I tend to be when preparing worship about how I use God language. The word God is important and meaningful for me, but I know that there are many in our communities who struggle with it. And now I very rarely use the word God without accompanying it with words of explanation. I might uh, explain that by God I can mean that of the divine with each, within each one of us, that connects each to the other and that inspires and enlightens us and moves us to great acts of compassion. I might refer to that moving force behind the universe which coheres with the scientific laws discovered by human in ingenuity through the ages. I might refer to that mysterious force which imbues all things and yet also transcends all things that we can touch and understand. My first year of ministry was spent with the Unitarian Universalist Congregation of Bedford, Massachusetts. And in my first sermon in Bedford, I sort of laid out my plan for the year, and I said I hoped to spend my year with them, exploring how we might look afresh at words like God and prayer, which many Unitarians recoil from. In the talkback session, which followed every service there, I was met slightly stony silence. And then one of the older woman's, women stood and she said that she hoped I realised what she was going to say was not about me, this was about theology. But she said that this congregation had moved beyond all this talk of prayer and some kind of a divine being years ago. This very vociferously humanist congregation wanted no truck with all this God stuff. And suddenly, there, a couple of thousand miles away from home, I wasn't really sure what I was doing there. What was I going to do for the next year? They took a very dim view of everything that I held dear. And on the Monday following that sermon, I took myself off to Walden Pond site of pilgrimage for lovers of Thoreau and Emerson, and I lay down beneath a tree beside the site on which uh, Emerson, uh, uh, Thoreau had built his little shack beside the lake in the autumn sunshine, and I allowed the deep power of the earth to permeate my body and to begin to soothe my bruised and battered spirit. And after a while, I took out a book that I had with me, a book called Faith by Sharon Salzberg. It's a very small book, and I would recommend it. And I began to read voraciously, and this book spoke to my soul as my discussion partners in Bedford the previous day had not. And in her introduction, Salzberg relates a conversation with a friend, and the friend, friend asked, how can you possibly be writing a book about faith 
without focusing on God. And Salzberg's response was this, whether faith is connected to a deity or not, its essence lies in trusting ourselves to discover the deepest truths on which we can rely. Trusting ourselves to discover the deepest truths on which we can rely. And for me personally, I've been able to articulate the deepest truths that I have experienced by using the language of God and prayer. And this doesn't mean that I have rigid beliefs about the meanings of those very, very slippery <coughs> words. And there in Bedford, in a strange way, I found myself for a time more at ease with my evangelical fellow ministry students with whom I was doing some courses at the Harvard Divinity School than I did with my humanist Unitarian congregation. With my evangelical ministry uh, colleagues, I could freely and openly use the word God and know that even though our... Uh, intellectual explanations of that word might be quite different. There's some core of it that we probably experience the same. And it was a very enlightening part of my journey of faith. It was all about the power of language and perception. And as I continued with my year of ministering to the community in Bedford, I found that I was largely speaking from my heart but being much more careful about my use of theological language than I might otherwise have been. I shared much of the thinking that I had wanted to about the experience of the numinous and the spark of the indefinable divine within each of us. You know, thinking to thought something that Nancy said yesterday, that we have a responsibility to reclaim that word God, I sometimes think maybe I should have been a bit braver and kind of forced that word on them a little bit more and kind of pointed out that responsibility that we have as liberal religionists to reclaim that word God. But I didn't. I, I, I very much used kid gloves with them. And over that year with that community, I developed a very deep affection for them and very much became part of their beloved community. And during one of my last discussion sessions there before I left, the elderly woman who had been so very suspicious of my approach at my first service stood up and thanked me by saying, you've taught us so much about tolerance. <laughs> that was a great thing to hear. And another woman who had been completely unchurched as a child and a young person and who came to this Unitarian Universalist community largely for its great community spirit and because there, was, there were great people there, she thanked me for introducing her to concepts of spiritual journeying which were completely new for her. And so I came to the realisation about just how very slippery theological and, and spiritual language can be. And no word more so than that tiny but hugely complex word, God. Now, I have occasionally thought that as Unitarians, we can sometimes lack subtlety and imagination in our interpretation of language. We can be, oh, such literalists. And I remind you again of the joke about Unitarians being bad hymn singers because they constantly have to read ahead to see if they concur with the words rather than just immersing themselves in the experience of singing. We need to be sure that we can understand, interpret, and concur with each word that we use. <coughs> I know many practitioners in mainstream Christian churches who have very, very nuanced and non-dogmatic concepts and understandings of God, who maybe attend high masses and formal liturgies without accepting any of it literally, 
who appreciate the beauty of formal liturgy and regard the stories within as myth which can illuminate our path through the world. And sometimes I feel, why do I always have to translate everything and add the nuances while I'm, when I'm leading my congregation in worship? These are intelligent and creative people. Why can't they do it for themselves? <laughs> but then I remember that there are times when I attend mainstream Christian services and how I often balk at some of the language that is used. I can say the prayer of Jesus without problem, but no leap of imagination or subtle reinterpretation makes me feel comfortable with reciting the Nicene Creed. And I realize that different people have different needs in their approach to worship. And I have found my spiritual home among people who like to acknowledge clearly and often that God talk resides in the arena of mystery and metaphor, and that we need to unpack it and explore it and explain it. And we sometimes have a need to overtly enlarge our image of God by explaining it. This is the religious community with which I found my home, and therefore I feel a responsibility to again and again add those nuances when I use the word God. Abstract theological concepts, which don't have any literal meaning for one, can be useful jumping-off points for imagining one's way into thinking about and experiencing God. For example, during my theological studies at Oxford, much of it was done within a Trinitarian context. I took lectures in the main university, being lectured to by Trinitarian Christian theologians. And I came to appreciate the usefulness of a notion such as the Trinity, in imagining one's way into how a relationship with the divine might be experienced. I wrote an article in the Inquirer about this once and got some quite negative responses. <laughs> Our forebears fought for years and suffered to get rid of this notion of the Trinity and you want to reclaim it. And my response is, our forebears fought and suffered for the ability to be dissenters. And if we want to dissent against what they found to be true, that's our religious inheritance and, and heritage. And I've just found in studying these concepts of the Trinity, uh, it was useful to me. I especially found the concept of perichoresis useful. It's a word used to describe the mutual interpenetration of the three persons of the Trinity. It emphasize, re emphasizes reciprocity and exchange. It's seen as an image of a divine dance. It's a movement of divine relationship into which we as human beings are drawn into this dance with God, God dancing with God's self, God dancing with us. As a concept to play with, it's been helpful. However, it doesn't really make me any more comfortable with Trinitarian language in prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit doesn't really have much meaning for me though I can reinterpret it and go with it if I happen to be joining in worship with Trinitarian Christians. So I'm not saying I particularly want to reclaim Trinitarian language, but thinking about those theological concepts and how other people have interpreted them has been useful for me. And I know that many of us here wrestle intellectually with concepts of God and what that might mean for us in our lives in the world. But I suggest, I know for me it's true, there are times when surrendering to the emptiness, 
and calling it God may be just exactly what we need. Maybe. It's certainly what I need to do at times. And this is not the same as Pascal's wager. It's not making an intellectual decision that you might as well bet on God, because if God does exist, then you're on the right side, and if God doesn't exist, then it doesn't really matter what you believe. This surrendering to the emptiness is not the same as that kind of intellectual proposition. And for me, certainly, it usually comes at moments of great despair, moments of great joy. There have been times when all that I have had the strength to do is to reclaim a blessing which means a lot to me. Dear God, be good to me. The sea is so wide and my boat is so small. Recognizing that sometimes surrender is all that we can do in this particular moment. And I expanded that little blessing a little bit, looking at what it means to me. Dear God, be good to me. The sea is so wide and my boat is so small. I cannot see land. I cry out in fear. I hurl prayers from my troubled soul. How can I stand solid? And then I root my feet in my small vessel. And the awesome expanse enfolds me. And God is there all about me. I suggest that if fear of the largeness of life is set in stone, it can indeed overwhelm us. But it's possible to retune our perception and turn fear into awe. And sometimes, irrationally crying out to a childhood image of God is what it takes to retune our perceptions from fear to awe. I recently led a circle service for Unitarians in Edinburgh, asking attenders to share something of what the word God means for them. And I want to share with you now some of their responses. I'm going to read each one and leave a moment for you to absorb it. These weren't all from the service. Some also came from um, some workshops I did about God. So these are some of the, the feelings and thoughts of Edinburgh Unitarians about that word. I can describe my childhood concept of God, an old man with a grey beard who was all-powerful. My concept now is a lot more nebulous. The other extreme, it's internal rather than external. It's all-pervasive. It pervades me. I have become a humanist because of being so concerned about the God I once believed in, the God who commanded the Israelites to enter Jericho and slaughter all the inhabitants. But, but I can't really be a humanist because this doesn't answer the question, who am I? The Hindu concept of Brahman makes more sense. Brahman is man, woman, parrot, seasons, sea. The sacred sound Aum is a sacred sound that can speak to us all. It speaks of the light of the radiant sun. I believe in freedom to believe as the heart leads, but challenged by the responsibility to live for peace through justice. I don't believe in any God other than one that calls for the admonition, do unto others as you would have them do unto you.
That was from one of our more loquacious members. <laughs> I see God in the spirit of nature. I find God in the uncertainty of life. I find God in the words which are engraved on the Scottish mace, compassion, wisdom, integrity, and justice. Sometimes I pray for wisdom, and sometimes I get answers. And this is a religious experience. My childhood image of a loving being doesn't speak to me anymore as I see all the suffering in the world. Now I see God as a verb rather than as a noun. Godding. Helping reality to become what it can be. I am questioning the concept of God a lot at the moment while struggling to make sense of things in my life. And so I regularly pray the serenity prayer. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. I find God in the strength and compassion of human sharing, especially right now in spending time with a family with a severely disabled child. I see so much patience and compassion from the parents and such creative joy in the child. God is a rainbow of different colors, containing both light and dark. To love another person is to see the face of God. God is wind, energy, spirit. God is mystery. I am agnostic about the ultimate nature of reality. Scientific models are idols, incomplete impressions of an underlying reality that is deeply mysterious. They are all we have, and they work in practical application, but the nature of matter and energy is a mystery. And the, and the idea that it is a final reality is not something that reason can prove. Reason can and should be used until it reaches its limit. And when it does, that should be humbly acknowledged. A full acknowledgement of uncertainty is always the most honest and correct position to take. I had no childhood experience or picture of God, so I struggle to find any kind of significance in using the word, rather than just describing the virtues which have been used as synonyms for God. In conversation with people for whom the concept of God is very important, I've tried to compare our experiences of awe and wonder, and I find that in many ways my experiences are the same. Experiences which have at times caused me to let out spontaneous shouts of joy. Although I describe myself as an atheist, I am mindful of not being dismissive of what other people describe as their concept or experience of God, as I'm aware of how very deeply sustaining it is to many people. Coming at thinking about God from an upbringing of atheistic rationalism, from an early age I was always wanting to explore intellectually, to discover truth. 
exploring through physics the known facts and theories about the origins of the universe, I came to the question recently expressed on the cover of the, an issue of the Enquirer. If the universe came into being as the result of the Big Bang, then who lit the fuse? I have come to a position best described by the term panentheism. God present in all that is in the universe, but God also transcending the universe. I have come to the conviction of a supreme and benevolent intelligence existing before the universe came into being. I use the analogy of an author creating characters, not knowing what they will end up doing in the novel. I see the development of the universe as happening within the imagination of God, almost as if God is working out God's own mind by creating different aspects of God's self in human beings who will interact and grow and learn and thus increase in self-knowledge and wisdom. Human beings retain free will and the presence of evil is not part of the intrinsic nature of the creator God but results from damaged and flawed <coughs> parts of human nature. We seek meaning and order in the apparent chaos of the great cosmic processes. Religions attempt to make sense of the human conditions. We create God in our own image, and that shares our human qualities. Our beliefs are often our hopes and dreams. To me, God is neither a person nor a being, nouns, nor is it synonymous with nature or with the evolutionary process of becoming, implying a verb. To me, God is a state of mind that defies rational description. It is a state that can be induced in quiet meditation when the restless mind is brought into focus in stillness, it lies in the silence between thoughts. It can be found in the peace and solitude of nature. It can be witnessed under a wide and starry sky when we see infinity in limitless space and experience eternity in the present moment. It is a powerful sensation of being immersed in and connected to all life forces in the cosmos. Such God moments are transcendental moments of grace. They are special moments of joy which create a sense of elation and empowerment. They are energizing experiences. So these are the views of some of the people who make up our beloved community of Unitarians in Edinburgh. How to minister to such a diverse community. And in summing up, I asked the question, why use the word God at all? Why not just use the words such as justice, compassion, nature, wisdom, all of which have been used as synonyms for God. And I suggested that the word God can point towards that which underpins all of these virtues at a deep and mysterious level, that which brings these virtues forth from us even when we didn't know that we possessed them. Sometimes we find ourselves being greater and more noble than we thought possible. And for me, the concept that this part of my nature is brought forth by God is a helpful um, thought process for me.
So the Edinburgh Unitarian community has a very strong humanist element, and so I will probably continue to couch nearly all of my God language in explanations, allowing each person to expand the metaphor to their own understanding. I realise that I still balk at some words, and so I must continue to be mindful that there are those among us who balk at different images, and therefore it is good to gently allow for the expansion of our words and metaphors so that we can try to speak to other hearts wherever they are on their spiritual journey. I don't want to dispense with metaphors and images. I just want more of them. I want to acknowledge that they are slippery and malleable and that at different times, different ones are useful to us. Sometimes we need to cry out to God in our helplessness or in our joy. At other times, we want to root ourselves firmly in the ground of being or to tune into the energy that connects person to person. So many words to express the fact that God is inexpressible. And I think the best way that we can come anywhere close to expressing God in words is by coming at it sideways, poetically. Several of our speakers earlier this week have suggested that God has been best captured by the mystics. And I'm kind of running out of time, but can I go on for a little while? Uh, so I wanted to end by sharing with you some poems of the Sufi mystic Hafiz, who speaks to me very deeply. And I'm going to take a little bit of silence in between each one of them to allow them to settle and permeate our imaginations and our emotions, rather than our intellects. Hafiz writes, A hunting party sometimes has a greater chance of flushing love and God out into the open than a warrior all alone. Writes. Love wants to manhandle us, break all our teacup talk of God. If you had the courage and could give the beloved his choice, some nights he would just drag you around the room by your hair, ripping from your grip all those toys in the world that bring no joy. Love sometimes gets tired of speaking sweetly and wants to rip to shreds all your erroneous notions of truth that make you fight within yourself, dear one, and with others, causing the world to weep on so many fine days. God wants to manhandle us, lock us inside of a tiny room with himself and practice his dropkick. <laughs> the beloved sometimes wants to do us a great favor, hold us upside down and shake all the nonsense out. But when we hear he is in such a playful, drunken mood, most everyone I know quickly packs their bags and hightails it out of town. <laughs> Hafiz writes, All day long the earth shouts, Gee, thanks! <laughs> Such an exuberant G, it starts throwing things, as if God were passing by in a parade, encouraging rowdy behaviour by looking so beautiful that a whole avalanche of mania swoops in. 
I like this idea of throwing things at God, and especially his making us rowdy. Thus, as soon as Hafiz is out of bed, I start stuffing large sacks with old shoes, cucumbers, and prayers for the upcoming consecrated free-for-all. And who knows what else? And finally, it used to be that when I would wake in the morning, I could with confidence say, what am I going to do? That was before the seed cracked open. Now, Hafiz is certain, there are two of us housed in this body doing the shopping together in the market and tickling each other while fixing the evening's food. Now when I awake, all the internal instruments play the same music. God, what love mischief can we do for the world today? God and us creating love mischief in the world, I think is a good image to end on. So, it's so 10 o'clock, time to stretch, talk, think, sit. Till seven o'clock. said yesterday, not an end to your conversations, merely a pause, a brief pause. Thank you, Maud. I think Maud has done an inspiring job of showing us through her experience and also through the voices of those she ministers to with how people like us routinely just make sense of God. And as we finish our theme talk, perhaps the major task is to think about how we take back the thoughts and ideas from these talks, both to our communal and our personal lives, to our dialogue and to our meditation. There are two sides to reflecting on God. There is the personal, the introverted, the meditative but there's also the imperative, which Nancy spoke of yesterday, to respond to what God, in whatever sense, requires of us. What we know through our congregations and our experience of church is that what matters in the end is how we are together. How we treat one another, how we treat those around us, how we live as Unitarians. And Maud has done a brilliant job of showing us how the way we speak of God helps us on that journey. One of the funny God stories is the man in the flood. Yeah, the drowning man? I'm sure you know this story. So he's, off, he's drowning, he's asking God to help. The rowing boat comes, the most boat comes, the helicopter comes, he refuses them all. And he finally drowns and he's at the gates of heaven and he berates Peter that God has not come to his aid. And Peter looks at him quizzically and says, what about the rowing boat? What about the motorboat? What about the helicopter? Yeah. And we often hear this as a story to poke fun at people with a literal and innocent belief in God. But the aspect I think I would focus on is the help that was sent. The joke often tells us more than the funny side. The very human assistance of three vehicles, 
people helping people. And one of my favourite readings from the Bible is very, very unfashionable. Um, and it's Matthew 25:35. It's not terribly poetic. <laughs> um, and it's when Jesus is asked, or when the question is asked, how do we serve God? And it reads, the king will say to those on his right, excuse the language, he won't say that, but you know I'm saying that. (laughs) (laughs) Come you who are blessed of my father, again, inherit the kingdom, again, prepared for you for the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in, naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him, Lord, (laughs) (laughs) you you, you can't, it's just difficult, isn't it? You just have to see the asterisk, see that asterisk. (laughs) When did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you, a stranger, invite you in, naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it, to one of these brothers or sisters of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. So in these situations, in hunger, illness, human beings serve God by serving God in human beings. They also, I would argue, act for God, doing the work of God. They become the very real hands of God. We become the presence of God on earth. In the midst of the greatest human despair, there are often two distinct responses. The first is to cry to God for help, to trust God, to work and wait for the despair to be relieved. On the other hand, and as amply illustrated in Ely Wiesel's writing about the Holocaust, is the denial of God. The point where despair is so great that the person of faith loses what had until then sustained them. We must not lose sight of this reality. That God as traditionally constructed, God as the beard in the sky, apologies Michael, has failed humanity time over time. I know if any of you watched the series Rev on the BBC recently. Anybody watch that? One of those moments when you think, that's why I pay my licence fee. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic, fantastic television. And if you saw that, you may have seen and perhaps empathised with a minister of religion who doubts and questions but cannot, cannot let go of God. The most moving scene, and I have to say most episodes I ended up crying by the end. (laughs) This is a comedy. (laughs) The The best comedy, the best comedy should move you to tears. The most moving scene was when he, after a night of drunken excess, brought on by a crisis of faith, is called by the police to give the last rites to a woman who is dying. The policeman who takes him there cares little for the crisis of faith. He cares only for a woman in distress. I'm welling up just remembering it. It was beautiful. He cares only for a woman in distress who needs the vicar to fulfil his responsibilities. In being the hands of God, he is reminded again what his vocation is. That despite all the reasons to doubt and to fundamentally disbelieve, something makes his vocation very real. We may want to construct that as human sympathy, as duty, or all manner of things, but I'd say they are all fundamentally of God. Bill Darlison, another beard in the sky. Bill Darlison (laughs) has accused much Unitarianism today of being unduly materialistic, of having lost God in the headlong pursuit of scientific validity. 
At the other end of the spectrum, Stephen Lingwood, in a recent post on his blog, and if you want to know what a blog is, I'm sure you can ask Margaret now. <laughs> that Margaret, she's been educated. <laughs> Stephen Lingwood um, asked about whether we have a lack of theology to answer the questions people have at their most desperate moments in life. He referred to an episode of Desperate Housewives, which is why I love Stephen Lingwood, <laughs> where one of the characters was searching for a church in which the issues which concerned her were being addressed. <coughs> and Stephen wrote, and the character is called Lynette, Stephen wrote, how many Unitarian churches actually deal with meaty theological questions like the ones that Lynette was asking? How many of our churches are so light on theology like, that issues like this never come up? If Lynette went to a Unitarian church that was only talking about political issues or the spiritual practice of gardening, then would she have found a place that could deal with her questions or one that was sidestepping them? Two extremes of a picture of what our faith and our denomination is. Both have a point. We will all have experienced Unitarian worship at these ends of the spectrum. We must not assume that the best of our church, as we experience, may be here or elsewhere. That the best of our experience of church is what will be found if you walk into a random Unitarian church this Sunday. This is the challenge of what our faith can become without rigour. Without rigour. And I know that people don't like that, but without rigour, this is the challenge of what our faith can become, one end or the other of that spectrum. <laughs> and I think this is a challenge which must be addressed right from the very heart of our being. It must be addressed by really giving ourselves to thinking about questions such as what it is that God means to us, how we act in relation to God, how we make theological sense of our theological diversity. These theme talks have prevent, presented, I knew you said prevented, this, that would have been funny, have presented, <laughs> have presented a diverse, often overlapping, sometimes contradictory, but I hope challenging attempt to grapple with these issues. They have gone beyond the debates about which language to use, which religious traditions to respond to, while respecting that these are in themselves hugely significant issues. Taking the ideas and reflections from these talks back into our lives and into our congregations is the much harder task. Constantly evaluating what it means to be the hands of God. Opening ourselves up to the risky undertaking of dialogue. Having hope. Attending to the spaces between. Listening to and reclaiming the wisdom of sacred texts and state sacred stories. Working out where religion and God begin and end and relate to one another. The list goes on. All are worthy undertakings. All are part of what it means to be a person of faith. Unitarianism is at its strongest and its most poetic when it responds to the challenges of God while striving to make sense of what it means to be a modern religious liberal. I started by arguing that Unitarians were among those who led religious liberals in their radical evaluation of how we, as a human race, could speak of God. If we are serious about reclaiming the Bible and God from the religious right, we need to ask if we are ready to take the lead again. Ready to look outwards in dialogue, with a real belief that there is something fundamentally valuable about the Unitarian path. And that looking outwards, that willingness to share, can only happen when we as individuals have done the hardest work it is possible to do. When we have learned to live in right relationship with ourselves, with our community and with our God. How long shall we keep God waiting?
We end again with a few moments of stillness. In the act of worship which started the theme for this week, Lindy reminded us of the story of the rabbi and the abbot and the brothers who learned to see God in each other. And so, although we may ask questions about God's name, about God's qualities, about the nature of beliefs, in the end, maybe only one question matters. What if God was one of us. What if God was one of us? Just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home.